Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Science of Genesis Paradise Law series, posted July 13, 2018, titled Science of Genesis Paradise Lost, Part 6, Enter the Dinosaur. Well, hey there. Uh, we got a few more minutes till you guys get to experience Genesis, so uh, I need something for you guys to do. Hey, Ralph. Yo. The vision of this film, what are you hoping to accomplish? We're trying to show that the Bible is true, but also the science to yes. back it up. If we're going to have a debate about science, can you please just be honest about it? Apologia presents The Science of Genesis, Paradise Lost. Part 6, Enter the Dinosaur. If you're new to the series, click on the eye in the top corner to watch from the beginning. Alan Fiducia, the head of biology at, at UNC Chapel Hill, says that it will be the paleontological embarrassment of the 20th century, the idea that birds evolved from dinosaurs. In what seems to be a pattern, Charles plays a little fast and loose with his quotation here. Here's the article from Science, November 1996, where Fiducia is quoted by the author. Charles got part of it right will be the greatest embarrassment of paleontology in the 20th century. But was Fiducia referring to birds evolving from dinosaurs like Charles claims? The entire quote reads, In my opinion, the theropod origin of birds will be the greatest embarrassment of paleontology in the 20th century. As a reminder, the theropods are hollow-boned, three-toed dinosaurs like the Velociraptor, Allosaurus, and Tyrannosaurus. Why did Fiducia specify theropod here? Because, while Alan Fiducia famously goes against the scientific consensus that birds are descended from theropods, his contention is that instead, theropods and birds evolved from an as yet unidentified common ancestor, which itself would be a dinosaur. They're not a related lineage at all. That is simply incorrect. Alan Fiducia, the man Charles quotes here, fully accepts and defends that birds are related to dinosaurs. He just has a minor disagreement as to what kind of dinosaurs that birds are related to. Charles has either misunderstood or misrepresented the research he's quoting. Neither option is a good option. Consider dragons. You know, we see dragon legends in cultures all over the world. Consider mermaids. We see mermaid legends in cultures all over the world. Mesopotamia, Ancient Greece, British Islands, Europe, China, Africa, Thailand, to name a few. We find petroglyphs, you know, like cave drawings and etchings. We find ancient carvings of mermaids, and coins, writings, paintings. And many of these are images of dragons and, and creatures that we would call dinosaurs today. And many of these are images of mermaids and creatures that we would call, well, mermaids today. Because half fish, half humans have never actually existed. Yet by Bodhi's logic, if there are ancient legends that have superficial similarities across cultures, then we should automatically simply believe that these legends are true. If this is the case, then Bodhi should believe in the phoenix, centaurs, sphinx, griffins, and fairies, to name a few. But we don't typically believe in those creatures, or even assume that there's necessarily a kernel of truth to these legends. 
It's easy to see that these creatures are merely extensions and wild extrapolations from common beasts. Dragons are obvious extrapolations of any reptile. Why would we make a special exception for dragons to assume they were based in fact when the other creatures in the stories were not? And suppose dragons were based on dinosaurs. Is it not equally plausible that ancient people found fossilized dinosaur bones and used those as their inspiration for dragons? Some cases of this are documented in this book by Adrian Mayer. Why would the inspiration for these legends have to have been live dinosaurs? The word dinosaur didn't exist until 1841. So before 1841, very often the word dragon would have been used. Okay, but there are no instances in scientific literature, or naturalistic literature as it would have been called at the time, prior to 1841, of a naturalist using the word dragon to describe any natural phenomenon. It's not like it was ever used in that context. Now when it comes to evidence of dinosaurs and man living at the same time, believe it or not, we actually have an immense amount. Immense amount sounds like a lot of evidence. Rather than conceding that the viewer should just believe it or not, as Bodhi puts it, I assume the movie will take a few minutes to talk about some examples. It sounds a little far-fetched, but here we go. When we actually look at ancient histories from various cultures, we get very detailed descriptions. Those are creatures that today, in our modern world, we would call dinosaurs. Descriptions of dragons in fantastical genre tales can be kind of applied to creatures we currently know as dinosaurs. Was that the immense amount of evidence? The Samarangana Sutradhara, written in India around 1000 BC, contains a lengthy passage describing a flying machine that we would definitely call an airplane today. Should we therefore conclude that India had airplanes in 1000 BC? In the past, dinosaurs were simply known as dragons, even as late as the early 1900s. Dictionaries described dragons as now rare and a huge serpent. Notice how now rare was italicized there. When a dictionary definition includes the phrase now rare, it means that a particular usage or spelling of the word has become rare, but is included in the dictionary for historical context. It doesn't mean that the word itself, nor the subject of the word, is rare. You can see this for yourself with some antiquated definitions of husband-like, dote, rectitude, and even information. The phrasing used in Eric's movie implies that the dictionary is saying that dragons are rare. And by extension, dragons were previously plentiful, when all the dictionary is really saying is that people using the word dragon to describe large serpents doesn't really happen very often anymore. The Bible speaks descriptively of creatures that sound like dinosaurs. In the book of Job, God tells Job to behold the behemoth, a creature Job would have known. In fact, God specifically says that he made the behemoth along with mankind and describes it as having a tail that sways like a cedar tree. This is straying from the kind of science claims I like to examine, but as it is being held up here as prophetic evidence, I'll share a few thoughts from my own examination of this passage in Job. First, it's worth noting that most scholars of the Old Testament who have looked at the entire passage in Hebrew identify the animal being described here as a hippopotamus, elephant, rhinoceros, or buffalo. The Hebrew root word for behemoth is closely associated with cow or cattle. The only part of the description in dispute seems to be around this sentence about the tail. Second, while the narrator says sways like a cedar tree from the NIV version, on screen, it shows the King James Version, which says he moveth his tail like a cedar. Either way, we're talking about motion and not size. The tail moves like a cedar. It doesn't say that it's the size of a cedar. 
And how does a cedar move? Some basic swaying in the wind, maybe? Even the animation played in the movie doesn't seem very cedar-like in movement. Third, and least appropriate for Sunday school perhaps, is that the word in this verse that King James translates as stones is entirely, definitely, a euphemism for testicles. And scholars note that the word moveth here is better translate as extends. Some English translations even translate it as stiffen. Since stiffening his tail is part of the very same sentence as a description of his testicles, it's at least plausible to suggest that Job is telling us that the erection of behemoth is like a cedar tree. Fourth, and possibly most obvious, is that the most clearly defining feature of a sauropod is its neck. Would you really write a passage about a brachiosaur and fail to mention its neck? Would you describe a giraffe without a word about its neck? It seems unlikely. My daughter came back from her kindergarten class when she was younger. She brought home a book that said that dinosaurs lived a hundred million years ago. I'm confused about why we're getting a story about Charles' daughter's experience in kindergarten merely to establish a common scientific claim. Is this to evoke an emotion of some kind? Also, scientific consensus is very firm that the last major dinosaur extinction event was 65 million years ago. Charles uses 100 million. While it is certainly correct that there were dinosaurs alive 100 million years ago, it can be suspicious when the teller of a story includes arbitrary round numbers. It makes it sound like Charles might be misremembering details again. That is just an assertion. They're just saying it. An assertion is a confident and forceful statement that the speaker wishes the listener to take purely on authority. Kind of like earlier in this segment where Bodhi asserted that there's lots of evidence for humans living with dinosaurs. That may well be, but it wasn't presented. They didn't observe this. You can't repeat this. Of course, if it happened to be true that anything at all was happening 100 million years ago, no human would have been present to observe it. Is the lack of a human observer a good reason to dismiss an idea? If we were to go into a forest and find a tree fallen over, but could find no one who watched it fall over, are we unjustified in imagining that it fell? Or must we conclude that it grew horizontally on the ground because that's all a human has seen? It is man, fallible, imperfect men who separate man from dinosaurs by somewhere in the neighborhood of about 65 million years now. Did scientists really just make up that 65 million year number? Pulling it out of a hat? Or did these imperfect humans have any reasons at all for any of their claims? That will have to wait for the next segment. Next on the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost, Part 7, Obituary Column. Tap the subscribe button and the bell icon so you don't miss it. If you'd like to support the work of Apologia, please consider becoming a patron at the link in the description. Thanks for watching.